most people in the preservation world would say is not worth it. Um, but I definitely saw the beauty in it, um, the connection in it, and, and that it's the last thing that's kind of standing in this neighborhood that represents the art and the culture that kind of left. Um, this neighborhood really, really spoke to me. Hello, print friends, and welcome to the 50th episode of Pine Copper Lime, the internet's number one printmaking podcast. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. I release weekly podcasts with people in the print world who are doing something a bit beyond the expected. So please subscribe on your podcast listening app of choice. My dear print friends, this is a red letter episode in so many ways. I can't believe we're already at 50 episodes. It feels like only yesterday PCL was just a gleam in my eye. And I want to extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who supported us along the way. Family, friends, Patreon patrons, and those of you who have liked, subscribed, and shared. I am so thankful to ring in our next 50 episodes with my conversation with Maya Thomas and Chris Bulford, who joined me to talk about their project to save the Docks Thrash House. Docks was the co-inventor of the mesotint carborundum process, the first African-American to be hired at the fine print shop of Philadelphia, and a pillar of the arts community. Docks passed away in 1965, and his house now stands vacant. Maya and Chris are looking to change this through an ambitious crowdfunding campaign to raise $100,000 to save the house. We talk about the life of Docks, the importance of historic preservation, and the role that the house will have in the community once it's been restored. PCL would also like to announce our newest, first ever, on-air sponsor, Speedball Art Products. They've been bringing you a diverse range of high-quality products for your creative practice since 1997. If you've been following along on their Instagram, and we really recommend that you do, you've no doubt seen their newest initiative in the print world, Speedball's Print Posse. Working with many of our close friends here at PCL, including Killjoy, Martin Mazora, and John Hancock of the amazing Hancock Brothers, plus a wide range of others on our radar, they have created a brand new line of custom printing inks to push your practice even further. Head on over to the Speedball Print Posse shop at speedballart.com to find where you can pick up a new can of your new favorite color. But that is not all. Finally, to go along with today's episode, we're partnering with Speedball for a giveaway to support the Doc's Thrash House. For anyone who donates $50 or more to the project, they can enter in a drawing for an incredible collection of Speedball products. You will get Carborundum Gel, a 4-inch brayer, an Akua printmaking plate, an Akua Intaglio ink in carbon black, and the Rustler and Regulator set, which includes one of each of the eight new Print Posse inks. To enter, just send a screenshot of your donation of 50 or more to the Doc's Thrash House on their Instagram page for your chance to win. And as always, there's a link to all of this in the show notes. So, without further ado, sit back, 
relax, and prepare to preserve history with Maya Thomas and Chris Mulford. Hi, Maya. Hi, Chris. How are you doing? Hi. How are you, Miranda? Hey, doing great. Happy to be here, Miranda. Thank you for having us. Beautiful. Well, thank you both for joining me. Um, I know it's evening in Philadelphia right now, just as it's you know morning here in Australia. But I'm excited to have you both on to talk about this project, which is to save Doc's Thrash's house. I really found out about the project just through Instagram. Somebody sent me your page um, and I read a little bit about what you were doing. And it just sounds like really incredible, really important work. And before we sort of dive into the project, would you mind both letting me know who you are and what your background, what your expertise is kind of in relation to the project? Sure. So my background, uh, I study historic preservation um, in a conservation track. Um, and originally I'm from Los Angeles and uh, arrived to Philadelphia about four or five years ago. Participated in the studio about a particular na- neighborhood in Philadelphia called Starkwood. Um, and then discovered the Doc Thrash House um, as one of the historic resources in that neighborhood. And then slowly it started to unfold that that neighborhood was kind of like the, the Harlem Renaissance of Philadelphia. Um, there used to be arts and, and music and um, speakeasies and all kinds of things up along the boulevards and fell in love with the house. It was mm. like the only thing left from that era, from the 1930s um, until the 1960s. And so within looking at that whole entire neighborhood and school continued with this project after school um, and uh, with the partners, with my current partners, Dana Rice and Chris Mofer, who's on this call and has really been really, it's been enriching to kind of see it where it is now to finally fundraise. And we've had lots of up and downs on this project. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What about you, Chris? Well, you know, uh, I met, you know, Maya and Dana through uh, Penn as well, um, but I was on, you know, the architecture design track. But my last year when I was doing my thesis, I sat next to Dana. We shared um, some space um, in our thesis lab, and that's when she was doing um, her thesis on the Sharswood neighborhood and how um, it can be more um, sort of self-sustaining and ground up you know, as like kind of a workshop and, you know, kind of like, you know, started learning a lot about the neighborhood and, you know, through this kind of nice environment that, you know, the university allows you sort of kind of cross collaborated, kind of got excited about the project. And then, you know, after we graduated in 2016, Dana asked me uh, to join the project and was like, you know, and that's when kind of came on board and had a meeting with Maya and a few other people and students that um, were in a program called Penn Praxis, I think maybe we mentioned, but through that, you know, just kind of started looking at uh, how to create a feasibility study of what could happen with the Doc's Thrash House. And so are either one of you printmakers yourselves or have you dabbled at all in, in print studios hands-on? I have dabbled. Uh-huh. Um, before I came to Los Angeles, I worked as a teaching artist. I mean, before I came to Philadelphia, I, w- I worked as a teaching artist um, and did some prints in California as a teaching method mm. for both students. Um, and also, I'm just like a huge fan yeah. of printmaking. They're all just like the protest posters, like the way the accessibility 
um, the collective that come out of it, t-shirt design, all of that kind of stuff. Um, so yes. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. What about you, Chris? You know, uh, I got my first taste of printmaking um, in art class in sixth grade, and it was great. Mrs. Vo's mm -hmm. sixth grade, last period of the day. One of the, the best projects that you did all semester was, you know, the screen printing where you got to bring in T-shirts and or mm -hmm. whatever and just kind of go nuts. The layered technique, you know, um, you know, just like, you know, here's you got to come up with a sketch. You got to like really think about how much ink you're using, like if it's going to take to, um, uh, you know, kind of just gave me like a very like kind of like at an early age, I think, respect for it. And then one of my first jobs, you know, as a kid was uh making blueprint copies and um it's completely different but you know you know dying technique you know but you know it's all about you know kind of the replication and that one-to-one -one time it takes to like you know actually copy something and create you know a new image um so you know that was uh you know kind of helped me get into the architecture world um mm. and get me to where i am today yeah you know you both sort of spoke about like this neighborhood in Philadelphia in general. And Maya, you said that you sort of fell in love with this house, you know, in and of itself, even within that neighborhood. What was sort of the catalyst that made you decide, okay, I'm going to do something. We're going to get this house. We're going to make sure that it's safe. How did that decision come about to take on this like pretty large project? Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so like I said, I'm from Los Angeles and I um, actually lived through the Los Angeles riots in the 90s. I was living in South Central Los Angeles at the time. I was very young and impressionable mm -hmm. at the time. My ideas of like what was going on around me and my surroundings were, I didn't really have the context for to know what, what was really, really happening. And then as I got older and I got that context of like, segregation and redlining and this uh, disinvestment in communities um, and then like the kind of rage that communities are feeling right now that are with all the unrest that are happening all over the country. I saw this as an opportunity. I saw the Sharswood house. We're looking at Sharswood because it was being faced with um, a kind of the Philadelphia Housing Authority decided to kind of come in, um, blow up the housing projects that they had mm. built in the 60s. And there's no grocery stores. Mm. The business corridor used to be really, really uh, a really sound place for people and families to go. That is now not the case. Um, there's a lot of housing. There's a lot of, actually, there's a lot of vacant land. There's more vacant land than there are houses in this neighborhood. And I saw the correlations between the things that I saw as a child and couldn't do anything about it and the things that I'm seeing in this neighborhood that are having the same effects um, systemically with um, oppression and racism and thought I could do something. Mm -hmm. And I have, a, I, I'm getting this degree from this fancy school. Um, I know a little something. I'm going to get out here and really save this house. And this house, most people in the preservation world would say is not worth it. Mm -hmm. um, but I definitely saw the beauty in it, um, the connection in it. And, and that it's the last thing that's kind of standing in this neighborhood that represents the art and the culture that kind of left um, this neighborhood really, really spoke to me. Yeah. Why would most people say it's not worth it? Because the house itself has um, kind of been sitting there empty mm. um, for a very, very long time. And once that happens, you start having severe deterioration of the house and the property. 
Um, and so um, a lot of the fabric, we use the term fabric um, in historic preservation is, is gone or missing. And so that they all, we also use a word called integrity. Um, so the integrity of the historic place of the materials and stuff like that is, is questionable. But there's also a train of thought in preservation that kind of speaks to like the cultural um, aspect of mm-hmm. it. And so when you weigh those, some people weigh the, artec- um, the architectural um, integrity and the materials uh, integrity higher than they do the cultural aspect mm-hmm. of it. And so that's why some folks would say, if you can't save the whole thing, then, or if it's not all the way there, or if it's any anything like that, it's not even worth, we should just like, you know, put a sign up and then mm-hmm. it'll de- demolish it or something like that. Right. Um, and I, with this project, I'm making that argument that, especially with African-American historic sites, this is the case most of the time, or this is the case that you come along these properties and there are derelict and they're empty and they're leaning to the side a little bit but they're still worth saving and that's kind of like the impetus of like I wanted to prove that point and make that point with this project yeah absolutely I'm really interested to kind of dive more into you know like what the house represents and what it sort of means for for the neighborhood and for the history of Philadelphia but just to give maybe people who aren't familiar with docs, just to back up a moment, I know that the Philadelphia Museum of Art has a website that's called Docs Thrash Revealed. And so I'll definitely put a link in the show notes to that for people who really want to do a bit of a deep dive. But could like either one of you just give a bit of an overview about Docs Thrash's life for the listeners to give a bit more context on, you know, why this building as it relates to the person who lived there. I can do that. I think Chris and I can tag team this. Um, okay. <laughs> perfect. Yeah. On, but I can start with the overview and Chris can give like all the yummy details that I'm forgetting. Okay. Um, uh, <laughs> Doc Thrash uh, was born in Griffin um, and Georgia. Grew up there and then kind of traveled out of the South, just like most African-Americans during the Great Migration Period. Um, and moved to the north, traveling and ending up in Chicago and went to the um, the Art Institute of Chicago there. Was a World War One veteran, a Buffalo soldier in the West um, during that time as well. And then went scattered in different cities, went to New York, went to other places in the north and landed in Philadelphia and bought this property. Um, he had a studio across the street from the current house where his house is, is at 2340 Cecil B. Moore Avenue and became a pillar of the community during that time in the 1930s um, and 50s, throughout the 50s, um, was very instrumental in kind of training other and bringing up other print-making um, artists um, in the community, started a club for African-Americans. It was a private club for people to come and kind of enjoy and relax, called the Pyramid Club, which is mm-hmm. on Gerard College with other Philadelphia artists and photographers, and kind of just like was around the city and kind of the forefather of like all of this art and activity. So people um, like Dizzy Gillespie, any of those artists from the 19s and 30s and 40s that were coming to play the Pearl Theater, I'm sure Docs would come and like be around. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, I'm imagining these things. It's yeah, not, I'm getting like goosebumps but, imagining like all of those like yeah. incredible, incredible <laughs> artistic talents in one place. Right. One place. Um, and so... 
he kind of was one Philadelphia based and was like, when you get here, when all these artists that are around at this time, when you get here, I'll be here and mm-hmm. established himself here, became collected all over the place. Like you said, the Philadelphia Museum of Art has a collection. He's world renowned, um, but also a little unknown. Mm-hmm. And so he started this process of imprint making called the Carborundum uh, method of processing um, and very, very much interested in kind of highlighting and looking at African-Americans um, and doing portraiture and landscapes and highlighting our lives and highlighting the way that um, we lived our lives to kind of show and prove that African-Americans are human beings, that they have full lives, that mm. they laugh, that they cry. Because it was at the same time that there was so so many lynchings going on at that time. It was the, the high rise of that. So there was like this new Negro movement that was happening to kind of like show the humanity of African-American mm-hmm. uh, people. Um, and so he did a lot of his artwork was he created that carborundum process. It was black and white to highlight um, African-American skin tones and then just show um, the working life, the living life and portraiture and landscape um, of of African-Americans um, and became right really, really well with that mm-hmm. um, and did really, really um, well with that. Maya, can I just jump in real quick on like what yes. you just said, you know, yes. about, you know, kind of the everyday life. You know, he did that not only with, you know, high-end art technique, you know, in his printings, um, but he also did that, you know, sort of in the everyday with businesses mm-hmm. in the neighborhood, you know, and that would be, printing the menus you know or the advertisements um or like when you know somebody would come through and play the jazz halls the bills that would go up advertising that you know or there would be an event um you know at like one of the social clubs and the bill for the night that let you know all the events you know would have all the businesses that sponsored the area listed in the back so it really you know he did it was at the time seeing the whole picture and kind of running the whole gamut from some of the mundane every day to like, you know, the very cutting edge of, you know, kind of a position of the neighborhood. Mm, Yeah. I think that's incredible that he was an artist who spanned that entire breadth of what printmaking can be. And I think that's so significant that shows how involved he was in the community, that he's making work that's ending up in museums and major collections, which is, you know, can be really sort of outside of day-to-day life of of many people, but also that he's saying, like, I can make the playbill for someone who's coming to town. I can make that menu for your restaurant. That's really, really beautiful, I think, that he's just using printmaking through, like, so many different parts of society. And in some, you know, in a lot of instances now, like looking at some of those everyday artifacts that, you know, are in the museum now, um, some of these things are, you know, a window into the past of the neighborhood, Mm. you know, referencing, you know, African-American owned businesses, you know, and buildings that are gone now. And so they, you know, these links of these printing becomes kind of part of the archaeology of trying to find out what was there before, you know, in the history. And it really kind of ties it together a lot Mm. um, when you start to experience those sort of, you know, mundane documents next to, you know, some of his fine prints, Mm -hmm. uh, thinking about, you know, in context of the neighborhood. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like he was a very busy man. Did he also have a family? Does he have any surviving relatives at all that you all are in contact with? Um, he does not, unfortunately. He mm-hmm. he was, but we're 
I don't think he had any children or surviving. Um, he might have had a brother or sister, and I'm not. We're not in contact with him. We would love mm. to be though. Yeah. Um, but no direct heirs or, yeah. 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 So if, if anyone's listening who knows someone or is or was related to Doc's Thrash, get in contact. Great. So yeah, I'm glad that we got to like dive a little bit in to Doc's and learn more about his life because it just sounds like he was an incredible pillar of that community um, and an incredible force in printmaking. But as you said, a bit of a forgotten figure. You know, I'm a print historian by training and I will f admit to my shame I did not know who, who he was when someone sent me a link to this. So yeah. I think that's just part of kind of the greater issues with the ways in which African-American history is glossed over and forgotten and not given its due in any educational training, but I think in the arts as well. And so I think projects like this where you're bringing attention to the physical space and saving this this um, as a monument and as as something that by its nature you're saying that like important things happened here is part of what really spoke to me about this project. I would love to hear from your point of view why do we want to save a building? You know, it's almost sort of like a philosophical question, right? But like, it's like, in, in your words, like, why is it significant that bricks and wood and that are just like put together in, in, in this shape, that it stands? What does that mean for the history? What does it mean for the neighborhood? And why is that so important? So this is like a definitely a philosophical question for preservationist people but for I think for a lot of people history is like an abstract concept it was like something that was in the past mm. um and it doesn't affect them right now whatever happened then I don't need to like I have to, I'm not gonna read about it or learn about it because it's, it's nothing has to do with me now in 2020 and as a historian I think that is not true <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, because we keep repeating ourselves over and over again with the same mistakes. But also, I think for people who are not interested or for anyone who's interested to be able to embody something, to embody a historic period, embody um, a point in the history, embody someone that's not really, really, really known in a physical space is a little different than reading about it in a book. Right. Yeah. So if you're able to go to a place and walk inside and it's a, a house and you were familiar with the house. And sometimes you have good memories and sometimes you have bad memories. And that connects back to your memories. And if your memories are solid or if you're validated through your memories or a space or anything like that, it just makes it the experience a lot more real for people. Um, and it's also kind of transformational for people who are really taking that in and taking, um, taking that space in. Because if you can see it and you can hear it and you can feel it and you can taste it, that is how you create memories. Mm. Um, and so that memory will continue on. It's passed down the generation to generation. And it's not, it doesn't become like an obscure, like maybe that's true, maybe that's not. Nobody wrote it down. So maybe it's true or maybe it's not, which is like the Western concept of how you collect history. Mm. Um, yeah. But to have all those things, to have something that you can embody in and walk into and um, see, I think is 
it's something that is really transformational. And that's why I think Saving His House is also the last thing standing from this period of the arts um, and culture that was there. Where we're, Right now we're dealing with a lot of um, violence, poverty, and stuff like that. So I think bringing that aspect back to that community is so vital. Um, mm-hmm. I believe in the arts <laughs> just as much as, as I do in history. Mm-hmm. So if there's something for children to grasp onto other than um, the violence or whatever else they're seeing out in the streets and there's a place that they can go, to explore that, I think that will be transformational as well. And it's in their neighborhood. It's, it's, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I have like, in the research that I did before this, I have a, a quote from Rashida Phillips, who wrote an article yeah, about. Loves- yeah, Rashida. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just feel like it just sums up and just completely echoes what you were saying that it says, I do feel that the physical building is extremely important. The buildings that hold meaning and connection to our cultural legacy are disappearing. It speaks to the erasure that we are seeing happening, not just of our communities, but of our cultural memories. And I think that's just exactly what you were saying is that like that the building is linked to the cultural memory and the history and seeing that like this is a significant place. I was thinking about it just as you were talking about how, you know, when I was traveling a bit in Europe doing some research during my graduate work, I went to Nuremberg specifically to see Albrecht Dürer's house. And there was, and it wasn't, you know, even his house, his house had been destroyed during World War II and they'd rebuilt it, you know, I think as nearly perfectly as they could. And when you travel around Europe, you know, you see that you've got Albrecht Dürer's house and Mozart's house and, you know, all these different things. And it's, there's it's such a cultural statement to say that this person was significant enough that just where they lived they imbued this building with something that means it needs to stay and it's i don't know it's it just doesn't get um that's just a very powerful sentiment and i'm really 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 glad that that you've we've got great people undertaking this for for Dox's house for sure so maya You've spoken about in the past what you've called demolition by neglect. Um, Would you say that 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 is something that Dox's house is going through or sort of in danger of going through? What exactly do you do? Does that mean? So it's a it's a term. It just basically means that it's been um, sitting very too long. (laughs) Been sitting for too long. And so what happens like the best way to save a house is to use it. Mm. And to and be in it, and when once those systems that are in place, it's designed to house human beings. And once there's no human beings there to take care of it, to make sure there's patches, and you know if there's a hole in electricity or something, there's no bugs coming in. That house becomes derelict, and it becomes a place where basically it's you got winters, you got hot summers, you got all kinds of things. You got grass growing over on top of the bricks some moss and you know spiders or whatever growing and coming into the house um and if that happens for too long um there's nothing you can do um mm. as far as saving the house some people do this on purpose <laughs> mm. some people do it because they, there's no other other means for them to save the house there's no no resources for them to do that maybe it, the taxes are in arrears and it's too much of a burden for them so they just let it go but 
um, this concept of like demolition by neglect is basically um, when an owner or an entity or a city or a neighborhood is not having the resources to be able to keep up with the gems that they have. And so it's basically left um, to its own devices to a, to a point where it has to be demolished. Mm-hmm. And in terms of the neighborhood, is it, uh, are there many houses there that are also sort of under threat as well? And any other houses, I should say? I was going to say, like, you know, there, there, there are always, you know, more structures in danger, um, you know, of coming down around there. And, you know, the, the question in the end is, like, you know, what you asked before, like, are they worth saving? And, you know, I think there's always, you know, many answers to that question. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it kind of becomes in the end like a question of somebody's asking like, well, why am I going to save this? Mm. Um, you know, so there's definitely more houses that are in danger of this, um, you know, of coming down that are, you know, historic. And, you know, I think one of the things, you know, you kind of start to like unravel threads about some of these seemingly, you know, unknown houses actually like to the neighborhood, they're very significant. And if you spend any amount of time you know, kind of, you know, learning the oral history from the neighborhood, you realize that you can, you know, make important historical references to almost any property. Mm. Um, And the approach for that is like, you know, there's always a demand for new development. Mm. Um, So, you know, outside of neglect, you know, there's, you know, an active entity that, you know, takes advantage of the neglect in the end. So there's always somebody like, you know, but that's somebody else's will trying to impose on the neighborhood. So in the end, uh, the neighborhood remains vulnerable and, you know, needs good stewards. So once the house is saved, meaning Doc's house is saved, what are the next steps? What are the plans for the building? That is an exciting question. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So there are so many opportunities for this building. Um, And like Chris mentioned, we did a feasibility and possibility study um, as our first step and kind of figuring out what's going on with this house and what, what can, what are the options? We've talked to people like Rashida Phillips. We've talked to people, other um, printmakers like uh, Philadelphia print works. We've talked to um, the, Amalgam comic book store. We've talked to so many people and the community itself kind of like mining these ideas as far as what do you see here? I should note that the house is next to the library, the free library system on Mm -hmm. Cecil B. Moore Avenue. So that even makes it a bigger um, impact. And then also is on the end of a block. So you have the Doc Thrash house on the end of the block. Then you have the library and then you have this, like, it takes up most of the block. So to have, like, a, a, a cultural institution, a library on the end of a block of a major corridor, Cecil B. Moore and Ridge Avenue are a major business avenues um, and commercial, mm-hmm. um, I think would be a turning point for this neighborhood. I don't want to give up all the plans now, mm. but uh, once we get past this initial phase, I think it will be amazing mm-hmm. um and i i kind of want to tell now but i can't okay <laughs> we'll um, just we'll have to all follow along yeah <laughs> you, you have to donate gotcha gotcha i love that yeah. i love that yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah and so with the like with i guess just kind of like the logistics and when we say you know save the house 
obviously you said like it's not being used and that's that is going to mean that it will just fall into disrepair but can we talk just a little bit to the logistics of the actual project so like how much are you trying to raise what's that money going to go to um just like yeah some of the nuts and bolts of the fundraiser you know in terms of like the actual physical nuts and bolts of the house itself you know right now it's survived a series of violations um, from licensing and inspectioning in the in the city of you know essentially being you know an unsafe structure mm. and so the current uh, owner has gone through a stabilization process to essentially correct these violations and you know has completed the stabilization so you know we were very happy that that happened and now the next step you know is physical like construction itself to um, begin reusing it. And so what I mean by that is like temporary bracing mm. and any kind of site safety stuff will need to come down. Um, but the, you know, that takes time um, to happen. Uh, and then, you know, after the site is been sort of turned into an active construction site, hopefully, you know, the building itself takes shape pretty fast. Gotcha. Gotcha. So the funds will be used just to, it sounds like preserve the house like actually physically so it'll be safe and functional and um you can move forward with plans for making it more of a, a cultural landmark for the neighborhood yeah definitely and yeah. i would say like the stabilization of the building is kind of like the physical you know kind of uh, tangible side of this you know and then like sort of the uh you know kind of the other side of you know how this money will be used is you know campaigns in the neighborhood and you know public interaction uh, community engagement and we do that with uh, ethos of education as well as trying to engage people to give a voice of how they think the property should be used or how it could be used mm -hmm. so uh, it serves kind of both uh, purposes in the end uh, to support the campaign so it sounds like there'll be an element then of sort of community engagement and asking the neighborhood you know, how it can sort of serve them and how it wants to fit in. Is that correct? Part of this, you know, of how that we came together was very grassroots. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this, you know, in the, in the beginning, this was really a side project um, for the university kind of like help maintain and, you know, kind of grew into like its own identity over the years. Uh, and so it's very bottom up grassroots, you know, in origin. And, you know, I think we have, as we've gone into the neighborhood and kind of uh, interacted with the community, the need of kind of constantly like engaging this community is is there um, to use it because that's ultimately who it's, it's going back to. Um, mm -hmm. So it can't be, you know, kind of handed down from on top of exactly what this should be. We're kind of there to help create the framework because we believe in the possibilities of the place. Mm. Yeah. And when you're out in the community and you're talking to people, are people who are living in the neighborhood now, how aware are they of, of Docs? Does he still have, does he sort of loom large in the, the history in their mind? Every time we're out there, uh, we meet somebody that has had some sort of interaction, either directly with the house or by um, reputation of the people that have lived there. So it's it's always evident that how important the the parcel is mm -hmm. in terms of you know is the is then is that case then sort of 
because you're looking at raising um, 100000 through this uh, campaign that you have, but of course we'll put links to in the show notes, and that we're partnering with Speedball for a giveaway to help printmakers and, and other people be a little little motivated or a little thank you for their donations as well. But what's, so is the next step after you've reached this funding goal, is it immediately going and supporting the structure of the house or what, what comes next? Um, I think the next step for us is to um, partner with um, some community form of developer to purchase the house and go straight to the community design process, kind of figure out what's going to happen next with this house. Like Chris mentioned, the owner, current owner, went through a stabilization process, but there is more work that needs to get done. So with our partner, as as our development partner um, comes to fruition, that that will be taking care of that. I think we're going to go into a community process and come up with a design and then the complete build out of a building and programming and architecture, they call it programming as far as like what the spaces are used for whether it's an art gallery or if it's like an artist in residence or if it's like a, a film uh, movie house or whatever mm-hmm. the show, that design will come forward and then start implementing that design um, on that property. Beautiful. Well, that sounds really, really exciting. And the fundraiser goes through now through the end of July. Correct. And so... How can people find out more about Doc's Thrash House, the work you're doing to preserve it, and how they can help? Like, where's some online resources for people? There's so many. Once you start dig- um, digging in, we website is Doc's Thrash, I believe, at WordPress.com. And then about our particular project, like you said, the PMA has a, a great website. They hosted um, uh, an exhibition of all his work, maybe in the early 2000s. And so the curator there has been really helpful. He wrote a book about Doc's Thrash to find out more. And then also the the free library system in Philadelphia also has a collection of um, Doc's work and their collection. Um, we've been lucky enough to actually um, be able to see some of the original artwork around mm-hmm. Philadelphia through these collections and kind of see the original pieces. And I think our Instagram page at docs.thrash. um, on Instagram. Beautiful. Well, I will put links in the show notes to all of that. Is there anything else that you want people to know about Docs or the project kind of before we we sign off today? It's just a great effort um, at this time. We really, really, really want to do right by this house um, information point on spaces like this. And um, the campaign is is called the the Black Futures Campaign. Um, (laughs) um, We love it. It's basically just like having the opportunity for a neighborhood that's kind of getting gentrified for community members that have been there for a long time um, and any new folks to kind of come in and really get in the front of what's going to happen in the neighborhood instead of always being consulted after everything has been decided. So we're grateful for that opportunity. Um, everyone who's donating is making that opportunity a reality. And we just want to say thank you to everyone that's already supported the campaign. Um, we're about, I want to say, 35000 right now. And we, we got some ways to go, but we're going to get there. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Well, it's an incredible undertaking. And thank you both so much for joining me this evening. And 
I really hope that we can help raise awareness and help raise some funds for this. I know there's it's like a crazy time in the entire world right now, and I think that, you know, for a lot of people, I could see that, like, saving this house is tangible and it is doable and it is really good. And so I just feel like if people just kind of think about it, it's like, all right, this is something that I can help have some control over in this insane world. I think it's good timing for something for people to give people some hope and something to look forward to. I also want to say the printmakers are some dope people. <laughs> they have been at the forefront of this. I love them. Thank you so much. Um, now we just need to get the architecture and the preservation people on board. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. Uh, on behalf of the printmakers, um, I'm not super surprised to hear that that they're starting to come out because, like, printmakers love printmaking, <laughs> and so yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, beautiful. Well, thank you both again. And I will be in touch. And let's see if we can't start drumming up more excitement. And I hope everyone who hears this episode likes it and shares it and tells a friend and, you know, just pushes more and more and more this project because the more eyes that get on it, the more chance we have to get funds and to really see something beautiful happen. So thank you both. Thank you so much. Yes. Thank you, Miranda. Okay. Have a great evening. Well, that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when we get back to a classic printmaking interviewee goodness with Brian Robinson. Brian is a Torres Strait Islander printmaker who currently lives and works in Cannes, Queensland. We'll talk about his practice of interweaving images of pop culture with traditional carving motifs, how his relief prints influence his sculptural practice, and using a lino cut to create the parade track for the 2017 Commonwealth Games. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing help from Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week. 